Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. This episode looks into the process of paying for radio airtime, which is called payola. A dominant trend in the 1930s onwards, payola was a core part of the music industry and a huge influence on the dominant trends in popular music. Interestingly, while the practice is illegal and suggests a rich-get-richer musical hierarchy, it played a surprisingly positive role in pushing forward songs from more niche genres, such as country and R&B, at a pivotal time in history, thus presenting a wider range of music to American audiences. Because of this, the issue remains a complex one, with a lot of moral grey areas. So what is the story of Paola? How dominant really was it? And in what sort of form does it exist today? To help us answer these questions, we've asked John Hashduck, PhD, a history professor from the University of Montana Western. Here John explains just what's meant by the term payola. Well, payola, in, in relation to the music industry, means providing some kind of incentive to a performer or a disc jockey or I guess uh, possibly even a, a band or a uh, theater uh, to play music that the uh, party paying the payola has a financial stake in. The, you know, the main way that people make money in the music industry is by controlling copyrights. And that goes back to the uh, 19th century. And so the idea was you wanted to have as many people buy your sheet music initially or later on your records in order to generate uh, royalties from controlling those copyrights. And again, over the long history of uh, how popular music has evolved through the 20th century, you know, various changes uh, occurred. As I say, initially it was about selling sheet music. The idea that being that if somebody heard a song that they liked, they'd go out and they'd buy uh, the score and they'd take it home and play it on the piano. People would stand around and sing together. And, and the sale of that, uh, that physical object, the piece of sheet music, generated a royalty for the copyright holder. Uh, a little bit later on, that continued, of course, but uh, then you add records to that, and the sale of records generated royalties as well. And so the, the idea of payola was to, as I say, provide some kind of financial incentive to a, uh, usually a performer of some type to basically plug a song to generate interest in it and hopefully compel people to go out and buy the sheet music or the record. And that form of that incentive might be money. Uh, it might be uh, some kind of a deal or a discount. It could be uh, uh, even something more illicit, uh, like uh, drugs or uh, prostitutes or whatever it might be. Uh, whatever would get somebody to, to, to play your music or to perform your music in order to generate public interest in it and more sales. In the 1930s, payola is rampant and unscrutinized. A notable example is the Lucky Strike cigarettes-sponsored radio and television show Your Hit Parade, which supposedly selects its curated list of pop hits based on bestsellers on sheet music and phonograph records, 
the songs most heard on the air and most played on the automatic coin machines, purporting to be an accurate, authentic tabulation of America's taste in popular music. When pressed for answers as to how they reach their conclusions, however, your hit parade goes radio silent. While it will never be confirmed whether or not they are engaging in payola, it doesn't really matter if they are or not. The important thing is that behind closed doors, no one has any idea what's going on. But how frequent is payola really? John Hashtag talks about the prevalence of payola and some of the different forms it exists in. Uh, just about every entity that uh, had a financial interest in, in uh, uh, again, promoting their copyrights, their material, uh, probably engaged in some form of, of payola. Reading through back issues of Variety Magazine, which is the main sort of show business uh, periodical here in the States, the, the issue pops up all the time that different um, uh, promoters or pluggers, as they were called in the 30s, were going around and trying to make arrangements with maybe a big band leader, for example, to uh, add a particular song to their repertoire and uh, in return, uh, maybe get a little bit of a cash inducement to do so on radio to encourage disc jockeys to play certain records for um, theatrical uh, performances, uh, someone staging a play or, or earlier, maybe a vaudeville show. Um, again, just providing them some kind of incentive to uh, plug the song that the uh, uh, copyright holder had an interest in. And uh, as I say, from it really began back in the 1880s. You might have a corner bar that would hire a couple of musicians on the weekend uh, to go in and uh, play a few songs, get people up and dancing while they were drinking. And the song pluggers would uh, visit those establishments and try and encourage those uh, those little combos to play the music of their uh, of their employer. And as I say, uh, it often didn't take much. Maybe maybe just buying somebody a drink or uh, again offer them a five dollar bill or something like that might be sufficient. They'd add it to their repertoire. The crowd that came in on Saturday night would hear the song, and ideally, they'd go out and purchase the the sheet music. So. From the from that period forward, as I say, it it changes somewhat with the technological changes, with uh, the beginning of radio and uh, movies, sound in movies, um, and then later the uh, uh, sort of the explosion with forty fives and and LPs. But it's been around, as far as I can tell, as long as there's been popular music in this country, as long as there as long as there have been copyrights that have been valuable enough to generate uh, profits for whoever held those copyrights. It's clear that the practice appears shady at best. It's unsurprising that those involved do it behind closed doors, as public reaction to the idea that record companies are deciding people's taste for them will not go down well. What is surprising is that looking at payola backwards, starting from the results first, the impact of the practice is debatably positive. John Hashduck elaborates on this, along with the general impact of payola as a whole. It, it's, it's something that's hard to measure, because even though it was a common practice, it wasn't always considered entirely above board. The um, various forces within the industry, probably those who were being asked to pay, uh, kind of resented that and pushed back. Um, there was always concern that if it really rose to a serious level, and official law enforcement became interested, 
that there would be some kind of uh, restrictions placed on the industry. So they, they, they were always about kind of self-policing. But the problem with, with that was that there were benefits to it. I mean, the, the, uh, the music industry, at least in the United States, was not really a level playing field. There were some pretty powerful song publishers initially, uh, record labels later or, uh, or national networks on radio, who really had an immense amount of power in shaping what the, uh, what the public heard. And so they were very narrow, I think it's safe to say, in their, in their tastes or in their expectations about what would, would sell uh, to the broader public. And that meant that an awful lot of musical, regional music or uh, ethnic music, uh, music that was associated with African-Americans, was not considered to be prime material for a mass audience. And, and so they, uh, they kind of uh, resisted uh, promoting that kind of material. Payola actually levels the playing field a little bit when the uh, companies that were recording, let's say, to, to, to use the, the probably the most uh, uh, salient example in relation to the scandal that would have later emerge, the small record companies that, that produce that kind of music, if they wanted to get their material on the air, they didn't have the resources that the big companies did. One of those resources was that big recording companies often were connected uh, in the corporate structure with Hollywood studios and and network broadcasters. Uh, smaller labels didn't have that in. And as a result, if they wanted to get their music heard, they often had to resort to providing uh, payola. Uh, and many of them were willing to do that in order to you know get at least a little bit of a hearing uh, for the material that they were producing. So in, in terms of the impact, I, I think that in some ways you can make the case that it had a positive impact on broadening the scope of the kind of uh, musical material that was available to the public, that was made available to the public, especially with regard to radio uh, in the 1940s and the 1950s. Again, a lot of small independent labels otherwise probably would have been lucky to sell a few hundred copies of a record in a you know, local market. And, and maybe Paola gave them the opportunity to expand beyond that and actually generate some hits and, and arguably provide the public with access to music that would be very influential in shaping the the changes that would come with the development of rock and roll in particular. Of course, as with anything rock and roll related, it isn't long before the culture police become involved. Cultural fear-mongering at the hands of conservative anti-rock and roll groups lights a fire underneath the government, bringing us to the US Congressional Payola investigations of 1959, the most notable casualty of which is DJ Alan Freed. Famous for being the one who broke rock and roll into the mainstream, or rather introduced it to white teenagers, Alan Freed is as influential as a DJ could get in the 1950s. During the 1959 Paola investigations, Freed refuses to lie. He openly admits to taking Paola despite the recommendation of his employer, stating that since everyone's doing it and it's common practice of the job, it'd be ridiculous to punish him for it. He is punished, however, swiftly, and loses his position. But what's the story of this investigation? John Hashduck explains. Well, this actually has its origins in something that happened about almost 20 years earlier. There were two 
major licensing agencies in the United States, um, which you've probably heard of or at least seen on a record label at some point or a record sleeve. Uh, one was called ASCAP, the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. And they had been around since World War One. As I say, they were a licensing agency. What they did is they collected royalties on behalf of their members. So uh, an individual composer or possibly a publishing house would become a member of ASCAP and then ASCAP assumed the responsibility of going around to the various theaters and bars and bands and so forth who were playing music and collecting the royalties and then distributing them back to their members. Um, they were one of the more powerful entities in the music industry by the 1930s. And the way that they operated was to basically sell a blanket license to anybody who wanted to use their music. So a radio network, for example, or a uh, theater. Uh, could pay an annual fee to ASCAP, and in return, they'd have access to all of ASCAP's catalog of music for the duration of that license. And in the late 1940s, because ASCAP was the only licensing agency at that point, in the late 1940s, they kind of got a little, what's the word I want, ambitious, I guess. They, they started jacking up their annual fees um, at a pretty noticeable rate, especially for network radio, which was probably the most uh, uh, powerful uh, of the mass media in this country at that time. And the radio uh, networks sort of balked at these new uh, new terms. And they responded by creating a, an alternative to ASCAP called BMI, Broadcast Music Incorporated. Um, this was also a licensing agency, and it worked very similarly to ASCAP. The, the differences were probably in how they uh, paid things out. So the BMI was created by the broadcasters to provide an alternate source of music. Uh, ASCAP at that time controlled the most popular music, the, the, the things that you would associate with uh, Hollywood and, and Broadway in particular, um, you know, songwriters like Jerome Kern and Cole Porter, people of that nature. Uh, they were ASCAP members and they were considered to be the most popular composers and, uh, and lyricists in the country at the time. And it was assumed by ASCAP and others that the American public only wanted to hear that kind of music. Uh, when BMI was created, because they couldn't steal people away from ASCAP, started to sign artists and performers that ASCAP had largely excluded. And that often meant um, country artists, for example, blues artists, uh, people who were, um, again, at least from the, from the um, industry's perspective, somewhat marginal. Um, it, it's worth saying that BMI also tried to attract composers and, and, and members who were very similar to the Cole Porters and the Jerome Kearns and people like that. Uh, but there aren't a lot of people like that. That's when they started turning their attention to people who, as I say, ASCAP and mostly excluded. Anyway, th this created a, a big battle between ASCAP and BMI that would go on for a number of years. And the Paola scandal is almost the culmination of that in 1959. Um, ASCAP continued to harbor resistance against the kind of music that BMI, BMI was starting to uh, license. Uh, and again, mostly early on uh, blues, rhythm and blues, country, ethnic music. And um, uh, more and more radio stations were actually starting to play that music in the 1950s. And again, there, there's sort of a long story behind that too. Uh, with the rise of television in this country, uh, radio suffered a pretty significant decline in listeners. And, uh, you know, in the 1930s and 1940s, you could turn on the radio and you could listen to comedy programs and dramatic programs and news and sports and, you know, just about everything. 
um, by the uh, beginning of the 1950s with the rise of television, radio was losing a huge segment of its audience. And, and as a result, uh, an awful lot of revenue. And so they needed to uh, develop cheaper programming. And that's when you see the rise of the disc jockeys and musical programming, playing records on the air. Uh, prior to that, very often uh, radio stations, even small radio stations, would actually employ live musicians to provide musical accompaniment to their programs. But um, in, the, uh, in the early 50s, it became a lot easier and a lot cheaper just to hire one guy to play records for three or four hours a day. And um, an awful lot of those DJs were the ones who were subject to uh, this new wave of payola. And it, it was something that was practiced by, I think, all of the labels, the big ones like Columbia and RCA and Capital, uh, but more and more also the independents that were recording and promoting, um, um, again, blues, country, R&B, and, and eventually rock and roll, uh, uh, labels like Sun and uh, Specialty and Chess. And because they were smaller operations, I think it's safe to say many of them did employ the time-tested method of payola in order to get their music on the air. And because disc jockeys were often programming their own shows, um, they were uh, susceptible to those, uh, to those bribes. And so they started playing. Um, that doesn't mean that they didn't also enjoy the music or think the music was good. But again, th this was just standard practice for such a long time. The disc jockeys weren't particularly well paid. Uh, so uh, those, uh, those extra incentives probably uh, uh, helped. And at any rate, what you see happening in radio is that more and more BMI music is being played by the 1950s because they controlled most of the R&B and the, and the rock and roll. And ASCAP decided to try and do something about that. So um, they, um, uh, they organized uh, a group that went to Congress and pressed for an investigation into BMI as being um, a monopoly because the BMI was owned by the uh, broadcasters, even though they had arranged it in such a way that they weren't actually directly profiting from BMI, the feeling was that they were giving, giving uh, BMI um, sort of special privileges, special consideration playing their music. And so there was a congressional investigation. This would have been around 1955 or 56. And um, it ended up failing. It didn't, it didn't really go anywhere. Uh, it was pretty clear there was no monopoly. Uh, uh, in terms of the playing of music, the, the DJs were making their choices and they could very easily say they were playing the music that their audience wanted to hear. There wasn't really any way to, to test that or check that. So it kind of faded for a while. And then in uh, 1958, 59, there was another scandal. I'm not sure how familiar you might be with that, but there was something called the quiz show scandals here in the United States. This, this was a television uh, thing. Um, but uh, you had these quiz programs that had become very popular and it turned out that they were fixed, that they were given the answers to the contestants before they went on the air. And so it was seen as a, a huge betrayal of the trust of the American public who were cheering for these uh, contestants to, uh, you know, win big, uh, big money by answering uh, questions. And it turned out it was all, you know, kind of fake. Um, anyway, as I say, the Congress began to investigate that. That was a big scandal. But as a fallout from that, it was discovered that ASCAP publishers were paying the producers of the quiz shows to use ASCAP music for their theme songs. And uh, a totally unintended uh, consequence of the investigation, 
But when ASCAP found out that now they were under investigation, they struck back by accusing BMI, again, of payola and focusing the attention on the disc jockeys who they claimed were accepting that music. And in return, foisting uh, bad, horrible rock and roll on an unsuspecting public who didn't realize uh, that they had a choice. Uh, and, uh, and that's where the, the, the origin is. It's actually, as I say, it's sort of in the cliche scandals, um, Congress, I think it's safe to say, like many members of the establishment in the United States were not favorably disposed towards rock and roll music. And so this was an opportunity for them to, uh, grandstand a little bit about how this music was destroying the moral character of, uh, of young people and uh, needed to be stopped. And what better proof than the fact that uh, disc jockeys who were uh, the ones responsible for promoting this music were uh, engaged in this seemingly unethical, not illegal, but, but, but certainly questionable activity of accepting payola in return for playing records. The, the investigation was actually in the same um, uh, committee before the same committee of Congress that had investigated the quiz shows. So sort of a, a carryover from that. And they focused most of their attention, again, on the disc jockeys, um, who were really, in a lot of ways, kind of, the, from my perspective anyway, somewhat innocent victims here, because they were only doing things that had been long established in practice. And the reality was that almost everybody, or anyway, every level of the industry was engaged in payola, paying it or receiving it, but it was only the lowly disc jockeys who ended up being targeted for their role. And again, because they were the ones who were most closely associated with promoting rock and roll, which was seen as a uh, uh, potential uh, detriment to the youth of the nation. In the immediate aftermath of the hearings, change is drastic. Large numbers of disc jockeys are fired. Those who remain lose autonomy over their shows, with the higher-ups at the radio stations becoming the ones who get to pick their songs instead. Fittingly, they also quickly become the ones who receive the bribes as well. Instead of the underpaid disc jockeys getting an extra bonus, it now goes to the programme director or the music director. This aggressive recalibration is in response to the threat of further government involvement. Post the hearings, the Senate threatens to implement new legislation to restrict these practices. Much like the comic book industry around the same time with the Comics Code Authority, radio jumps into self-policing, doing everything the industry can to make government oversight appear like a waste of time. Still, the government has to at least publicly appear to be doing something so oversight of the practice is handed over to the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. This is a safety net. The logic is, if things ever get as bad again as they were at the end of the 50s, the FCC can step in and sort matters out. Of course, this is not how things go down. Paola returns to prominence quickly but with a key difference. The record companies now hire independent third-party companies to do the job for them. That way, the record companies themselves are no longer involved directly with the practices and so are no longer culpable. 
Because of the covert nature of payola, it's hard to know exactly just how prominent the practice went on to be. It's generally understood that less cash is thrown around from this point on, with various other incentives and benefits serving as the carrot on the stick. One first-hand account we do have, however, is our guest, John himself, who tells his story. When I was in graduate school back in the 1980s, I I actually worked part-time at a record store uh, here in western New York. And I was the assistant to the buyer. The buyer was the guy who chose what what records we were going to stock in the store and, uh, uh, you know, um, kept the record of what what was sold. Uh, At that time, the charts in this country, uh, Billboard magazine uh, was probably the most famous, but there were some others like uh, Record World and Cashbox. They they issued weekly charts. You know, what's the number one song? What are the top 10 songs? That kind of thing. And those were very unscientific, basically polls. Uh, that were conducted by the magazines every week by calling around to radio stations and record stores, maybe television stations, some other places where records were used, and just ask them, you know, what are the most popular records? What's selling this week? And uh, as I say, I was the assistant to the buyer. One of his responsibilities was to report to Billboard every week. And when he went on vacation, uh, he asked me to take those calls. And he would prepare the list that, you know, what this was number one, Bruce Springsteen or Michael Jackson or whatever it might be. But he'd tell me, if uh, if you get a call from Capitol Records, I probably shouldn't have mentioned names and implicating them, but if you get a call from Capitol Records and they ask you where you have Freddie Jackson this week, uh, we maybe had him five or six. If they offer us a 25% discount on our next order, tell them he's number one. And we change our charts. We change the way we, that we reported based on those incentives from the record company. So I, I imagine that was pretty common. I don't think we were the only ones who did that, but uh, it was an eye opener. It was an eye opener. It might be the that might be the incident that that caused me to uh, pursue uh, researching this particular topic. By the time we reach the 1980s, rock and roll has begun to truly intercept with commerce, and radio has become big business in a more traditional corporate sense. Gone are the days where a single disc jockey can be seen as an easy scapegoat. There's no need for a scapegoat anymore. Money has greased the wheels here, with everything working like a finely tuned machine. Much like how it's impossible to properly tax a multinational, it becomes all but impossible to even clearly observe payola, let alone stamp it out. Moving forward into the 21st century, it's hard to make any conclusive statement about the place of payola in the world today. To conclude, John Hashdick does his best to wrap up the legacy of payola as a whole. Even though to the public it appeared to be a very unethical, if not illegal, practice, and it it did raise questions, I guess, about how, how well they could trust people who were presenting them with this uh, material, this music, um, were, was it legitimate or were they, was something being foisted upon them uh, against their will? That on balance, I, I kind of think it probably had a positive effect on the music industry by opening things up, making it possible for, again, marginalized styles of music and marginalized performers to have access to the mainstream in a way that they probably wouldn't have had otherwise. 
if things had gone on the way that they were in the 1930s and even into the early 1940s, where you had basically four giant uh, record companies and three major networks and, I don't know, five Hollywood studios who basically controlled everything that the public heard, I don't know that, that something like rock and roll ever would have come along. Um, I don't know that African-American artists would have ever gotten a fair hearing. Uh, or uh, or country artists, or uh, again, any any number of uh, ethnic artists, Latin artists, etc. It seems like the the breakthrough for uh, all of those kinds of acts to have access to a broader public, probably to some degree, is based on on, on the existence of payola and the willingness of uh, of disc jockeys, whether they took payola or not, to give some exposure to these to these marginalized uh, styles of music. And so on, on balance, I, I kind of think it was probably positive. The, 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 the downside, I suppose, was that at least for that scandal in 1959, that the um, that provided a, a kind of a, a leverage for those bigger companies to go after the little guys. And at least for a little while, it seemed to have some impact on them. Thankfully, it wasn't long lasting. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Special thanks to our guest, history professor at the University of Montana Western, Dr. John Hashduck. John has a special research interest in America's popular music industry. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Jack McGee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song. We'll look into the life and achievements of America's 35th president, John F. Kennedy. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us to share this project with more listeners. So please do share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.